If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. Welcome, everyone. My name is Devor, and you are listening to episode 19 of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. A reminder, as always, if this is your first time listening, please go and check out the earlier episodes of this show and make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you keep up to date with new episodes as they come out. Today, on the heels of the show's very first franchise crossover episode, where we talked about Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra, is going to be the show's second franchise crossover episode. Today we're going to be looking at the debut property in Phase 4 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, WandaVision. WandaVision tackles some themes and ideas that are quite prevalent in the Star Wars galaxy, so I figured it was worth diving into it on this show. And uh, I quick shout out to Brandon over at Clashing Sabers for inadvertently inspiring this episode with a reply to a tweet of mine that I sent out around the time that the show was wrapping up. Today's episode is going to be divided into three parts. The first part is going to be very WandaVision-centered. We're going to take a look at the philosophy of WandaVision. Not the part you might be thinking of, although we'll get to that too, but rather some of the moral questions that the show raises. After that, we're bringing Star Wars into it to talk about how the franchise deals with issues around grief and loss, which are obviously a big part of WandaVision. And then last, but certainly not least, we're hopping aboard the ship of Theseus and looking at how that pivotal scene in the series finale has a lot of relevancy to Star Wars. So without further ado, let's dive in. So first things first. The philosophy of WandaVision. So the premise of WandaVision, as those of you who have watched the show know, is that it takes place after the events of Avengers Endgame, and we find Wanda Maximoff dealing with the loss of Vision. And what we learn over the course of the show is that in response to that loss and to that sense of grief that she feels, Wanda constructs for herself an alternate reality in the town of Westview, New Jersey. And in that alternate reality, Vision is still alive and she and him are living out their idyllic utopian family life and over the course of the show we see them going through various decades in american film history we start with the 50s and then go through the 60s the 70s all the way up to the 2010s and i think that whole notion the whole notion of living in an illusion of choosing to live in a reality that you know is artificial that is false i think raises some really, really interesting ethical questions. In particular, is there anything morally wrong with that? Is it okay to live in an illusion, to maintain this fictional version of reality, if it makes you feel good? If Wanda is made happy by 
imagining that vision is still alive and is her husband and that they are living out this perfect little family life in this suburban town, is there anything actually wrong with that? And that's what I want to take a look at. So I think WandaVision offers us an interesting lens to look at the philosophy of utilitarianism. So let's talk a little bit about what utilitarianism is. So utilitarianism belongs to a branch of ethics that is known as consequentialism. And so basically, there are a number of competing theories and models for understanding what makes certain actions morally right or morally wrong. And one of those branches, one of those schools of thought is what is known as consequentialism. And so according to consequentialism, actions are morally right and wrong based on their consequences. So you evaluate actions based on their outcomes, and then if you look at the outcomes, and the outcomes will tell you whether what you did is right or whether it's wrong. There are other models for evaluating the morality of certain actions or behaviors. So for example, you have what is known as deontology. And so deontological ethics are essentially rule-based. So what deontologists would say is that the rightness or wrongness of an action is not determined by its consequences, by the outcomes, but rather by whether or not those actions or those behaviors adhere to certain rules or principles. So that is one one other branch, then you also have what are what's known as virtue ethics. And so virtue ethics would say that the morality of actions or behaviors is not determined by either consequences or even by adherence to particular rules or principles, but it has to re- rather do with the character of the individual and whether they are acting according to a certain set of defined virtues. And we've actually talked about virtue ethics a little bit on the show. So if you go back to the episode about Yoda and the philosophy of the Jedi, where we talked about cynicism and stoicism and the ancient Greeks, that was all basically virtue ethics. All of that falls under that umbrella. But today we are going to be looking at consequentialism, and specifically one particular form of consequentialism, and that is utilitarianism. Utilitarianism defines... So so one of the questions about consequentialism is, so if the premise is that actions are morally right or wrong based on the consequences that they produce, on the outcomes that they produce, what sort of consequences or outcomes are we looking for? And utilitarianism posits one particular model for thinking about the consequences that we will be looking at to evaluate the moral rightness or wrongness of actions. And that has to do with utility. It has to do essentially with pleasure and pain. So utilitarianism in its kind of modern connotation, it really does actually go all the way back to the ancient Greeks. It's there in kind of earlier forms with Epicurus, but we're not going to go back that far. Utilitarianism in its modern connotation, as we know it today, originated particularly with an English philosopher by the name of Jeremy Bentham. He's really, in a lot of ways, the founding father of modern utilitarianism. And in one of his sort of defining treatises on utilitarianism, Bentham wrote this, quote, Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do as well as to determine what we shall do. On the one hand, the standard of right and wrong. On the other, the chain of causes and effects. 
are fastened to their throne. They govern us in all we do, in all we say, in all we think. Every effort we can make to throw off our subjection will serve but to demonstrate and confirm it. So Bentham adhered to a rather kind of straightforward, what we might even call a kind of simple utilitarianism. So for Bentham, whatever produced more pleasure than pain was good, and whatever produced more pain than pleasure was bad. That's more or less how Bentham understood and kind of defined utilitarianism. And then kind of in addition to that, kind of developing on that, Bentham came up with what became known as the hedonic calculus. So basically he came up with this whole kind of criteria, this whole metric for evaluating how much pleasure and or pain a certain action produced. And he basically like came up with all of these different ways to measure pleasure and pain. So for instance, there's like intensity, duration, and so on and so forth. So Bentham's utilitarianism, on the one hand, is rather straightforward. When you take a particular action, you say, okay, how much units of pleasure is it going to produce? How much? How many units of pain is it going to produce? If the former is bigger than the latter, then it's good. If the latter is greater than the former, it's bad and you shouldn't do it. Subsequent utilitarians developed more sophisticated models of utilitarianism. So, for instance, you have one of the kind of major philosophers who was influenced by Jeremy Bentham was a guy by the name of John Stuart Mill. And Mill adhered to a modified version of Bentham's utilitarianism. And in Mill's utilitarianism, whether an action was morally right or morally wrong did not boil down to a simple pleasure pain calculus. So one of the kind of immediate objections that one could raise to Bentham's simple utilitarianism is that it would seemingly sanction or demorally right all these sorts of actions that generally speaking, we consider morally wrong. So if we follow Bentham's metric, for instance, and we say, okay, well, any action that produces greater pleasure than pain is good. Then the question is like, what if someone, for instance, derives a great deal of pleasure from, say, torturing animals? If that gives them very, very high levels of utility such that it is greater than, for instance, any pain that they might be inflicting on those animals, then by the simple utilitarianism of Jeremy Bentham, it would be morally right. And so, in part, thinking about those sorts of objections, Mill developed what we might call a quality utilitarianism. So he makes this distinction between different types of pleasures rather than kind of lumping all pleasures in together under one big umbrella. And so in his book, Utilitarianism, Mill writes the following, and this is a rather long chunk here, so bear with me. Quote, it is quite compatible with the principle of utility to recognize the fact that some kinds of pleasure are more desirable and more valuable than others. It would be absurd that while, in estimating all other things, quality is considered as well as quantity, the estimation of pleasures should be supposed to depend on quantity alone. If I am asked what I mean by difference of quality in pleasures, 
or what makes one pleasure more valuable than another, merely as a pleasure, except its being greater in amount, there is but one possible answer. Of two pleasures, if there be one to which all, or almost all who have experience of both, give a decided preference, irrespective of any feeling of moral obligation to prefer it, that is the more desirable pleasure. If one of the two is, by those who are competently acquainted with both, placed so far above the other that they prefer it, even though knowing it to be attended with a greater amount of discontent, and would not resign it for any quantity of the other pleasure which their nature is capable of, we are justified in ascribing to the preferred enjoyment a superiority in quality, so far outweighing quantity as to render it, in comparison, of small account. What is he talking about here? So what Mill is essentially saying here is that when we're talking about the rightness or wrongness of actions, and we are trying to evaluate that on a utilitarian calculus, so we're looking at pleasure and pain, quantity is not sufficient. So we can't just simply look at how many units of pleasure is this action producing and how many units of pain is it producing or not producing. We also have to look at the quality of the pleasure and the pain that are being produced, particularly the quality of the pleasure. And so then Mill kind of goes in and sort of offers a way to think about and kind of rank the quality of different pleasures and basically saying something like, if everyone or almost everyone who is familiar with a certain form of pleasure would judge it to be a kind of superior form of pleasure, then that would be considered a kind of higher order pleasure and so on. So if we think back, for example, to the thought experiment I gave a few minutes ago about like the animal torturer, someone who derives a great deal of utility from that, Mill would basically say that in order to evaluate whether what the animal torturer is doing is morally right or wrong, we can't just look at how much utility he's getting, how much, how many units of pleasure he's gaining. We also have to look at the quality of that pleasure. So what Mill would say is that once you factor quality into the moral calculus, then you will ultimately conclude, I think he would probably say that in the animal torturer case, that even though the animal torturer may be getting high units of pleasure from their actions, that pleasure is of a lower quality than, say, other forms. So, for instance, Mill would say, for example, it would be a lower form of pleasure than, let's say, the joy that you might get from, let's say, reading a very good book or attending the opera or doing anything like that. That that pleasure is of a kind of higher form than a kind of common or base pleasure, like, let's say, the, the kind of sadistic joy that someone might get through torture. So Mill's modification on Bentham's utilitarianism is in part there to account for some of those objections to a more kind of simpler form of utilitarianism to say, actually, we can't just look at how much pleasure or pain in action is producing. We also have to make this additional evaluation of the quality of the pleasure or the quality of the pain and then say, is this actually a desirable form of pleasure that is being produced? If so, then it is a morally right action. But if it is a kind of lower order pleasure, if it's a lower quality form of pleasure, then the action may in fact be morally wrong. Those are just two models of utilitarianism to look at. 
And both of those, both Bentham's simple utilitarianism and Mill's quality utilitarianism, fall under one particular branch within the philosophy of utilitarianism, and that is act utilitarianism. So both Bentham and Mill were what we refer to as act utilitarians. So that means that they looked at how much utility specific actions provided. So they basically said, if you want to know if an action is morally right or wrong, you have to look at how much pleasure or pain that specific action produces. So if I do X, how much pleasure does X give me? How much pain does X give me? Does one weigh out the other? And depending on how that falls, that tells you whether the action is morally right or wrong. Now, that is not the only school of utilitarianism. So not all utilitarians think that moral rightness or wrongness is a function of the utility produced by specific acts. So you have another branch of utilitarianism that is known as rule utilitarianism. So what is rule utilitarianism? So rule utilitarianism is slightly different from act utilitarianism. So in order to understand what rule utilitarianism is, let's take a look at one of the proponents of it, a philosopher by the name of Brad Hooker. So here's a chunk of what he has to say about rule utilitarianism. Quote, suppose that accepting rules is a matter of having certain desires and dispositions. Now consider the theory that an act is morally right if and only if it is called for by the set of desires and dispositions, the having of which by everyone would result in at least as good consequences judged impartially as any other. For lack of a better name, we might call this theory disposition-slash-rule-consequentialism, or just rule-consequentialism for short. So he uses the phrase rule-consequentialism. We can just think about it as rule-utilitarianism. For our purposes, it's basically the same idea. Back to Hooker here. Two crucial features of this theory should be noted. One is that it assesses the rightness and wrongness of any particular act, not directly in terms of its consequences but indirectly in terms of a set of desires, dispositions, and rules, which is then assessed in terms of the consequences of everyone having that set. The other is that it assesses the rightness of any given act, not in terms of the desires, dispositions, and rules, which are such that the agents having them would bring about the best overall consequences, but rather in terms of the desires, dispositions, and rules which are such that everyone's having them would bring about the best overall consequences. What does that mean? Let's think about the difference between act utilitarianism and rule utilitarianism with a specific example. So let's take the case of stopping at a red traffic light. So you're driving along the road, you see a traffic light ahead, it's green, but then it switches to yellow and then it switches to red. So now the question is, should you, from a moral perspective, let's leave out legal matters for a moment, morally, should you stop at the red light or should you just blow through it? An act utilitarian would say, in order to determine which is the morally right or wrong action, you need to look at the utility that you would get from doing that. So how much pleasure would you get from stopping at the red light and waiting versus how much if we don't want to say necessarily pain you would get, let's say how much inconvenience you would get from stopping at the red light. If you'd get more pleasure by just driving right through the red light, then you would not stopping at the red light. 
then you should just go through it. And then vice versa is true. If you get greater pleasure from stopping at the red light than not stopping at the red light, you should stop at the red light. A rural utilitarian would say, we shouldn't be looking at this from the lens of any particular individual. So the question is not whether you personally will get greater pleasure from stopping at the red light than not stopping at the red light. We instead need to evaluate the rule itself. That rule being stop at a red light. If we wanted to find that way, right? Always stop at a red traffic light. And so the question is, does that rule, if everyone observes it, get us overall greater pleasure than pain? Because think about some of the potential issues if we follow the act utilitarian model. If every individual decides on an individual basis whether or not they're going to stop at a red light or they're just going to go through the red light based on how much pleasure they're going to get from doing it or not doing it, that's going to cause all sorts of traffic issues. People are going to get into accidents and so on and so forth. So the rule utilitarians would say we should evaluate not from an individual basis, but from the basis of the rule. Is the rule overall as a general matter going to produce greater pleasure than not following that rule? So there might be individual cases where on an individual basis, someone might get greater pleasure by just blowing through the red light rather than stopping. But if the rule as a general matter produces greater pleasure, then that rule should be followed, even if, like, let's say you on an individual basis have to take an L every now and then. And, you know, we can think about intuitively a rule that says everyone should stop at a red light, regardless of whether it would benefit you individually to blow through it would be a rule that, as a general matter, would produce greater pleasure because you'd have fewer people just crashing into each other. So, just to quote a little bit more from Hooker here, quote, Rule consequentialism claims that individual acts of murder, torture, promise-breaking, and so on, can be wrong even when those particular acts bring about better consequences than any alternative acts would have. For rule consequentialism makes the rightness and wrongness of particular acts not a matter of the consequences of those individual acts, but rather a matter of conformity with that set of fairly general rules whose acceptance by more or less everyone would have the best consequence. So what he's talking about there is exactly what I was just talking about in the context of the red traffic light rule. If that rule, as a general matter as accepted by more or less everyone, would have the best consequences, then that rule is the morally right rule. Regardless of whether or not, on an individual basis, some people would actually have better consequences by, say, just blowing through the red light than not stopping. You really have to look at the rule. So there we have a kind of general overview of utilitarianism. So we looked at the kind of basic premise of utilitarianism, and we've looked at a couple different schools. We've looked at a couple different versions of what is known as act utilitarianism with Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. And then we've looked at a competing model to act utilitarianism, which is rule utilitarianism. Now, WandaVision offers us an avenue to explore some of the criticisms of utilitarianism, both really in its act and rule variety. So this whole notion of evaluating the rightness or wrongness of actions based on how much pleasure or pain they produce, however you kind of define pleasure or pain, or whether you're looking at acts and rules. 
there are a number of different objections that have come from different corners, particularly from different philosophers who have who adhere to competing schools of moral philosophy. One of those criticisms, one of them that is particularly relevant in the context of talking about one division, is a thought experiment that is known as the experience machine. So the experience machine was an objection to utilitarianism developed by a philosopher by the name of Robert Nozick in his book Anarchy, State, and Utopia. So what is the experience machine? I'm going to quote Nozick here where he describes it. Suppose there were an experience machine that would give you any experience you desired. Super-duper neuropsychologists could stimulate your brain so that you would think and feel you were writing a great novel, or making a friend, or reading an interesting book. All the time you would be floating in a tank with electrodes attached to your brain. Should you plug into this machine for life, pre-programming your life's experiences? Nozick makes a couple of kind of additional assumptions about the experience machine. So, for instance, he he assumes that you'd have a whole catalog of experiences that you could choose from. So you'd have like a wide range of pleasures that you could kind of feed into your brain through the experience machine. And additionally, he makes the assumption that when you're inside the machine, you won't know you're actually in there. So from your perspective, for all intents and purposes, all of these things are real and literally happening. You wouldn't realize that all of this is just being created by the experience machine. According to Nozick, utilitarianism would tell us to plug into the experience machine. Because if we're evaluating the moral rightness or wrongness of actions by how much pleasure, how much pain they produce. Well, then if you have this machine that you can just plug into and it can pump all of these illusions into your brain and you're thinking you're living a fantastic life where you're you know, married to the greatest partner ever and you're you know, traveling to all these exotic locations and you're rich and all of that, well, then that is, by utilitarianism, that is a fantastic life because you're going to get all this utility. You're going to get all this pleasure. And presumably in the experience machine, you're not going to really feel that much pain. You're going to be shielded from any of the real world issues, any any suffering that's happening outside the experience machine. And since you can customize how you feel in the experience machine, presumably you're not going to program the experience machine to give you all of this bad stuff happening, right? You're not going to have like a job that you hate or people you love passing away. You can just have the exact perfect life you want. Nozick, however, doesn't think that it's a good idea to plug into the experience machine. And he offers three reasons not to plug into the experience machine. So I'm going to quote them. First off, quote, First, we want to do certain things and not just have the experience of doing them. In the case of certain experiences, it is only because first we want to do the actions that we want the experiences of doing them or thinking we've done them. So the first objection to the experience machine, according to Nozick, is we don't just want the utility that we get from certain actions. We don't just want whatever units of happiness or pleasure that we get from you know, reading a book or hanging out with friends or going on a vacation. We actually also want the real experience. We want to literally read the book. We want to actually hang out with our friends in the real world. We actually want to take that vacation to that real place. It's not just about the pleasure. What's also important to us is having the real experience, really being there. So that's the first objection that he raised, the experience machine. 
Number two, quote, a second reason for not plugging in is that we want to be a certain way, to be a certain sort of person. Someone floating in a tank is an indeterminate blob. There is no answer to the question of what a person is like who has long been in the tank. Is he courageous, kind, intelligent, witty, loving? It's not merely that it's difficult to tell. There's no way he is. Plugging into the machine is a kind of suicide. So in other words, what Nozick is objecting to here is that in life, we don't just want to collect and catalog a certain set of experiences or to accumulate a certain set of pleasures. We also want to live a particular life. We want to be a certain person. We want to be someone who has this or that character traits. And none of that we can get by plugging into the experience machine. If we're in the experience machine, we're just this unconscious person who is having all of these pleasures fed into them through this device. We're not really a person in a kind of comprehensive sense, in a kind of full sense of what it means to be a person. We don't have a personality. We don't have any real character traits or qualities, or if we want to go back to the ancient example, we don't have any virtues. We're just subject to all these pleasures that are getting piped into our brains. So that's, that's number two. Third objection. Quote, Thirdly, plugging into an experience machine limits us to a man-made reality, to a world no deeper or more important than that which people can construct. There is no actual contact with any deeper reality, though the experience of it can be simulated. Many persons desire to leave themselves open to such contact and to a plumbing of deeper significance. So the third objection is that according to Nozick, we humans desire to have this connection with reality on a kind of deeper level, on something that goes beyond just a set of experiences or doing certain things or feeling certain pleasures. We want something more, you could say, existential, something more fundamental, maybe something even spiritual, if you want to use that language. Like we want to think about big questions about, you know, what is the meaning of life? What is my purpose in the universe? and so on and so forth. And none of that we get by being plugged into the experience machine, because in the experience machine, we just have this kind of shallow, artificial, constructed reality. So those are the reasons that Nozick gives for saying that plugging into the experience machine would be a bad idea, even though under utilitarianism, there might be a moral argument for saying, yes, you should go under into the machine. And we can see some parallels, if we think about this, between the experience machine and what we see Wanda doing in WandaVision. She, like in the experience machine, she has kind of constructed this artificial reality for herself in which she is getting all of the pleasure that she can't get in the quote-unquote real world out there because Vision is dead outside Westview. And Nozick would kind of object to doing that for the same reasons that he would say plugging into the experience machine is bad. Because on the one hand, Wanda, in her fictional Westview, she's experiencing pleasure from you know having vision around and having the kids and all that. But none of it is real. She's not actually experiencing any of it. 
Like she's not having a real actual marriage. She's only having this relationship with this fiction that she has constructed. And so the objections that Nozick raises to the experience machine. So like the fact that we, we don't just want to have a set of experiences. We, we actually want to do things that the fact that we want to be a certain way and be a certain person and that we want to have as he says, contact with a deeper reality. All of those objections to the experience machine apply, I think, to varying degrees to Wanda in her fictional Westview. She is also not doing certain things. She's just having these experiences kind of fed into her brain, but she's not actually living them out. She's not being a certain way. She's not being a certain person. And she's also like not connecting to the kind of deeper reality of the world outside of Westview. Now, if we think about this Westview experience machine, if we want to think about it in that way, Nozick would say that utilitarianism would tell us to go into the experience machine. But I think that if we think of the specific case of WandaVision and Westview, I think there are some potential utilitarian objections to the Westview experience machine. So unlike the experience machine in Nozick's formulation, Wanda isn't the only person in Westview. She's trapped, as we find out, all of the residents of Westview. So all of these real-world people who had real lives are now playing these bits in her constructed reality. And as we see in the series finale, they've all been suffering on account of their imprisonment. We have that moment where the Westview residents are kind of momentarily freed of their delusions and they all kind of surround Wanda and then talk about how much pain they're in. And then there are also earlier moments. There's that scene where Vision is at work in his office and then the one guy kind of breaks character and we get to see like what he's been going through. So on the one hand, Wanda is getting a great deal of pleasure of utility from being in this experience machine. But everyone else around her, all the other residents of Westview, all of them are suffering. So... In light of that, utilitarianism, and particularly act utilitarianism, might point away from entering that particular experience machine, so the version of it that we get on the show. And we might even think there might be possible rule utilitarian objections also, because the rule utilitarians would say, like, whether or not the Westview experience machine is morally right isn't a function of, like, how much utility Wanda herself is getting. It would be about, let's say, the rule of whether or not you want to create this kind of weird, detached, alternate reality that exists on the show. Okay, so we see some potential ways that we could adhere to utilitarianism and get out of the issue of the experience machine, at least the WandaVision version of the experience machine. But let's throw another curveball in here to look at another potential objection to utilitarianism. So let's think about that act utilitarian response to the Westview experience machine where it's like, yeah, sure, Wanda's getting pleasure, but look at all the suffering that she's inflicting on the residents of Westview. If you do that hedonic calculus, to borrow the phrase from Jeremy Bentham, it would weigh out in saying, actually, the Westview experience machine is bad. But what if Wanda Maximoff is a utility monster? Now, I know what you're thinking. What is a utility monster? This is another objection to utilitarianism, also given to us by Robert Nozick. And this is how he defines it. Quote, 
Utilitarian theory is embarrassed by the possibility of utility monsters who get enormously greater gains in utility from any sacrifice of others than these others lose. For, unacceptably, the theory seems to require that we all be sacrificed in the monster's maw in order to increase total utility. So the premise behind the utility monster is that Let's say you have a scenario like what you have on the show in WandaVision, where you've got a scenario in which one person is getting utility, is getting happiness from a particular scenario, but then there's a whole bunch of people who are also suffering. In ordinary circumstances, we might say the suffering of the many would outweigh the pleasure that the one person is getting, and so therefore the action on utilitarian grounds is morally wrong. But what the utility monster thought experiment posits is what if that one person who's getting the happiness is getting so much happiness, getting so much pleasure from this particular arrangement, this scenario, that it just totally dwarfs all the suffering. So you could have 10 people, 50 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, a million people who are all suffering and who are all in pain. But this one person is getting so much happiness, so much utility. That once you do the math, basically the suffering is like a rounding error. Like it doesn't even barely factor in. There's just so much happiness on the other end of the scale that per utilitarianism, the action is still morally right. Now, we have no way of knowing whether that's the case in WandaVision. We have no evidence to tell us whether or not Wanda Maximoff is in fact a utility monster as Novozik defines it. But it's something to kind of think about there. If it were the case that, despite all the suffering of the residents of Westview, Wanda was still getting so much happiness that it was outweighing all that, would the Westview experience machine, under those grounds, would it then be something that is morally acceptable on utilitarian, if we accept the premise of utilitarianism? So we've just talked a little bit about some of the philosophical issues and questions that WandaVision raises. We've talked about how it can offer us a lens into the moral philosophy of utilitarianism. Let's now move on to actually bringing in some Star Wars into this conversation. As anyone and everyone who's watched the show knows, WandaVision is, first and foremost, above all else, it is a meditation on grief and loss. And as we see over the course of the show, Wanda's grief over the loss of Vision during the events of Infinity War and Endgame manifests in a variety of ways. So when we see her at the beginning of the show, we find her really in a state of denial. When we meet her, she's living this idyllic 1950s family life And she is essentially doing everything she can to maintain the pretense of that illusion. So we get that scene where the beekeeper climbs out out of the manhole, who we later learn is actually a sword agent attempting to infiltrate Westview. And both her and Vision see the beekeeper outside, and she immediately senses that, like, this is a problem that this is someone attempting to pierce the bubble. And so she basically rewinds so that Vision doesn't have any memory of seeing any of that. So she is 
laser focused early on on maintaining this artificial reality that she has constructed. And we see for the first few episodes of the show, we witness everything solely from the perspective of Wanda. As we get into the middle of the show, though, we are introduced basically to the second concurrent plot that is happening in WandaVision, where we get to see what is happening outside of the Westview bubble, and we get to see the operation that S.W.O.R.D. is putting on in order to investigate the phenomenon and also to take Wanda out because they see her as a threat. And this is where also we get the plot of the big three in WandaVision, so Monica Rambeau, Jimmy Wu and Darcy Lewis. And what we see with Wanda is that on several occasions, she lashes out at those who try to intervene and attempt to either pierce the bubble that she has created in Westview or attempt to help her in any way. So we get that scene where Monica, who is one of the characters inside Wanda's universe, she inadvertently lets slip that she is from the outside, that she has this outside knowledge. And as soon as Wanda realizes that, she immediately forces Monica out of out of the bubble. We also get that scene where Wanda herself exits Westview and basically confronts all of the sword agents and and soldiers. And and threatens them, essentially. She says at one point, quote, I have what I want, and no one will ever take it from me again. So we've got those two ways that Wanda's grief and loss are manifesting on the show. On the one hand, we've got denial, and then we also have this lashing out, basically, against anyone who is trying to get too close to her. She's basically trying to push everyone away. In some cases, as we see with S.W.O.R.D., for understandable reasons, because they're not especially friendly to her. But even folks like Monica, who are genuinely trying to help her and are worried about her, she's also pushing those people away. We also get to see her go through a literal reliving of prior traumas and loss. So we get that fantastic episode previously on where she and um, Agatha, who I'll actually talk about in a moment, they basically journey back through Wanda's past and make a pit stop at all of these pivotal moments where she experienced some sort of loss or some sort of transformation. So we get to see the moment when her and Pietro's parents were killed. We see the moment where she was experimented on by Hydra and her abilities were enhanced. We get to see her having that conversation with uh, Vision at the Avengers compound. So that kind of central element of grief, basically replaying and reinserting herself into these earlier moments that caused her a great deal of suffering. And then by the end of the show, after everything that happens in the series finale, we get to see her at long last accept and come to terms with the loss that uh, she experienced. And is at that point that she collapses the Westview bubble and sort of returns back to reality and decides to no longer live in this illusion, this construct that she has built, um, having recognized some of the 
problems and some of the fault that came with it, particularly after she confronts all of the Westview residents who have been kind of under their spell and all of the suffering that they have gone through as a result of Wanda's actions. As I just alluded to, one of the central figures who is in Wanda's illusion, who we initially are introduced to simply as another bit player in Westview, but then come to subsequently discover that she actually has a much greater role and a much more sinister role than we were first led on, is the character of Agatha Harkness, who we're first introduced to as Agnes. Agatha Harkness is a really interesting character because she is an example of what I call a mirror character, which is to say that she is a character who functions, at least in part, as a lens for us to be able to understand the main character and for the main character to understand themselves. So, for instance, if we take an example from the world of Star Wars, so one really good example of a mirror character in Star Wars would be someone like DJ in The Last Jedi. So DJ in The Last Jedi is there in order to be a mirror to and for Finn. Finn has this impulse to run away, to not participate in the fight, and you have DJ here who is the ultimate manifestation of don't join, live free, look out only for yourself. And so what you see in the DJ example is that very often mirror characters will have some of the same features that our main character has or whoever the characters that they're mirroring, but they will express those features in an exaggerated form. So Finn has that self-centered runaway impulse, but then DJ has it, but he has it in a much more intense and an overt form. And I think in similar fashion, Agatha Harkness functions in that way as a mirror to Wanda. So, for instance, if we look at the episode previously on where we learn about Agatha's origins, we go back to the 1600s and we get to see her being confronted by her coven and them accusing her of using dark magic. Uh, she has that line where she says, I did not break your rules. They simply bent to my power a line that is rather reminiscent of and could equally apply to what Wanda is doing in Westview, that she is using her powers in a way to kind of bend the rules, to bend reality to her own will. That's what Agatha is doing there when she is experimenting with, when she's dabbling in dark magic. And what we see in that flashback moment is that her coven, particularly her mother, who is the leader of her coven, all of them look at Agatha the same way that Sword looks at Wanda, which is to say that they only understand her as a threat. So for instance, there's that one moment where Agatha lashes out at all of the other witches and destroys them, and then her mother attempts to attack her, and Agatha tells her, I can be good, and her mother replies, no, you cannot. So the witches at that point had given up on Agatha the same way that Hayward and Sword had given up on Wanda. They could only understand her as a threat. The same way that Sword can only understand Wanda as a threat to be eliminated. And 
because there is nobody there for Agatha, because there is no one there to look out for her or to care for her or to believe in her that she can, in fact, be good, that ultimately dooms Agatha to the path that she ultimately takes and puts her on the path that we ultimately, to becoming the person that we ultimately see her in WandaVision. Where there, to go back to this concept of a mirror character, Agatha is in this story to show us what Wanda will become if she remains on this path that she is currently on. Because, as we see with Wanda, Wanda is willing to construct this artificial reality. She is willing to put the residents of Westview through this suffering that we get to see when they kind of come out of their fugue state in order to have the perfect life that she wants to have with Vision. So she's got, so Wanda in her grief has that selfish protective impulse. And Agatha also has that, but to a far greater and much more extreme degree. Agatha in this story, she is the villain. She is evil for the same reason that, say, Palpatine is evil in Star Wars. On the one hand, she, like a Palpatine, is utterly devoid of any sort of compassion or care for the well-being of other people. Additionally, like a Palpatine, Agatha's power is fundamentally extractive. She takes from others to make herself stronger. She's willing to weaken and destroy other people to empower herself. We see that in that flashback scene when she wipes out the other witches in her coven, and then we see her trying to do the same to Wanda towards the end of the show. She, in fact, has a line at one point where she says, I take power from the undeserving. It's kind of my thing. And, you know, to that point, I think there is, you can see a very clear parallel between the final confrontation that takes place between Agatha and Wanda in the series finale and the very end of The Rise of Skywalker. So we get that scene where Agatha is goading Wanda into giving her all of her powers. And there's a sort of parallel between that if we think about that scene where Palpatine discovers that Rey and Ben are a dyad and then he kind of absorbs the dyad energy in order to restore his body. So Agatha is there being extractive the same way that Palpatine is being extractive. She and he are both kind of parasitically feeding on someone else in order to make themselves stronger. So yeah, Agatha is there in the story to serve as a warning to Wanda to show what will happen if she continues on her path. And also in some ways, Agatha, even though the other people, particularly those outside the Westview bubble, aren't aware of her presence and who she is, Agatha is also there as a warning implicitly to the folks on S.W.O.R.D. and others to show what Wanda could potentially become if she is not cared for and about, if she is neglected, if she is simply treated as a threat, then you will end up producing another Agatha Harkness. And you see how Wanda herself is kind of in the show teetering on that brink of becoming a kind of Agatha type Villain. So there's one point where she has that conversation with Monica after Monica kind of comes back into the bubble where Monica t 
tells Wanda, don't let him, referring to Hayward, make you the villain, to which Wanda replies, maybe I already am. So you see her there kind of flirting with the darkness, right? Taking the steps down the path that lead to becoming someone like an Agatha Harkness. And so Wanda is in that, in her grief, Wanda is in that very fragile, vulnerable position. And Agatha Harkness is there to ultimately show us what the end of that path is if Wanda doesn't ultimately get off of it. And of course, what happens by the end of the show is that she is ultimately able to come to terms with her loss and is able to go in another direction and not become the villain of the story. In the same way that grief and loss are an important part of the story of WandaVision, they're also a big part of the story of the Star Wars universe. So there are many, many characters across the franchise, across different media, who we see dealing with various types of losses in both healthy and also unhealthy ways. And we're going to talk about both of those. So I think if we're going to talk about grief and loss and trauma in Star Wars, I think the natural starting point, and I think probably the most important starting point, is to talk about the one figure in Star Wars who I think is most defined by this, and that is the figure of Darth Vader. Darth Vader, and this is something that we have we did not know in the original trilogy, but we have come to learn both through the prequels and the particularly more recent years with a lot of the expanded materials, particularly the Vader comics have been really important to this. But even, for example, the Vader Immortal virtual uh, reality game, Vader is a figure who is both defined and consumed by the various losses that he has suffered in his life. So if we go back to Attack of the Clones, when he's still Anakin Skywalker, we see Anakin lashing out after the death of his mother. He slaughters the Tusken Raiders, not just the men, but the women and the children too. And what's important about that moment, about Anakin's killing of the Tusken Raiders, is that it's not only a defining moment in his path to the dark side, it's not only a moment where we first get to see the connection between the losses that he suffers and the wounds that those losses inflict upon him and then how he ultimately reacts to those losses in unhealthy and destructive ways. But it's also illustrative of the absence of any sort of safety rails around Anakin. So what we find time and again is that there are multiple moments in Anakin's story over the course of the prequels, where Anakin has these negative emotional reactions. He indulges these unhealthy impulses. But there isn't a proper support system around him in order to show him that what he is doing isn't right and to kind of guide and help him towards a more positive emotional state. So, and I think the Tusken Raider case is a perfect illustration of this. So, if we look at the people around Anakin, if we look at his friends and allies, how do they react to him killing the Tusken Raiders? 
Well, when he gets back to the Lars homestead and he makes the confession that he's murdered the Tuscan Raiders to Padme, Padme's response is, to be angry is to be human. And I talked about this line a couple episodes ago when I did the episode on love in Star Wars about how I thought and still do think that that is a decidedly un-Padme reaction, that she seems ra- she, she comes off as not particularly caring about the fact that Anakin has just admitted to slaughtering all of these innocent living beings who had nothing to do with the capture and death of his mother, and that she simply treats it as, well, this is how people will react. To be angry is to be human. In addition to that, we get that scene where Yoda is meditating, and he senses through the Force that something has gone wrong with Anakin. He hears Qui-Gon crying out. He hears the cry, presumably by a Tusken Raider being murdered. And he and Mace Windu have that exchange where Yoda says, pain, suffering, death, I feel. Young Skywalker is in pain, terrible pain. So Yoda knows there's something wrong, and he senses that Anakin is lashing out in a very destructive way. But there's no follow-up. We don't get a moment, we've not at least yet seen anywhere in canon, where Yoda or Mace or Obi-Wan ever go to him and be like, so uh, what happened on Tatooine there? Like, nothing like that happens. There's nobody who, they see that something is wrong, but that doesn't translate into actually taking any proactive steps to try and help Anakin deal with what he's done, helping him to realize why what he did was wrong, and to help him understand and develop more positive ways to react to things like loss and pain. The next time that we see the slaughter of the Tusken Raiders come up in canon, at least that I am aware of, is at the beginning of Revenge of the Sith, after Anakin has killed Count Dooku on the Invisible Hand. And the person to bring it up is Palpatine. So Anakin feels that guilt about killing Count Dooku because he was an unarmed prisoner. And he says, well, I shouldn't have done that. It's not the Jedi way. And Palpatine's response is, quote, it is only natural. He cut off your arm. You wanted revenge. It wasn't the first time, Anakin. So if we think about those two things side by side, you've got on the one hand, you've got those closest to Anakin, those in the best positioned to help him deal with his loss and to deal with loss in more psychologically healthy ways, those folks aren't really doing much to reach out to him in very substantive ways, in ways that are actually going to have an impact and put Anakin on a better path. The only person who is actually responding in a proactive fashion to Anakin's suffering and loss in this instance is Palpatine. And Palpatine is validating Anakin's actions. He's saying, yeah, it's only natural. You wanted revenge. Of course you killed Count Dooku. That's how you should react. That's how anyone would react. The Tusken Raiders captured your mother and tortured her and led to her death, and then you slaughtered all of the village, it's only natural. You wanted revenge. Palpatine is indulging Anakin's worst impulses, and he does that 
all throughout the prequels where he is feeding into Anakin's megalomania and telling him, you're the most powerful Jedi, you're so gifted, you're even more powerful than Master Yoda. He's constantly feeding into Anakin's psyche and telling him that his lust for revenge, his desire for power, for greater control, that all of that is good and that he should indulge those impulses. So you've got this very this very volatile and dangerous situation with Anakin here where he's reacting in ways he's not processing these losses these these traumas that are getting thrown at him in psychologically healthy ways and the architecture around him the people around him the network around him isn't equipped to put him on a better path you've got the jedi on the one hand who see that there's a problem, we sense there's a problem, and aren't doing much for him. And then you've got this mentor father figure in Palpatine who is simply pushing Anakin further down the path he is already on. And so those two factors, both the fact that Anakin doesn't have a particularly healthy coping mechanism to deal with difficult situations, and then also the fact that he's got this very rickety, problematic network of people around him, those two things together combine ultimately to have Anakin in a situation where he is susceptible to ultimately turning to the dark side and doing what he does in Revenge of the Sith and then beyond as Darth Vader. And... I think when we look at the story of Anakin and Vader, there are a number of key moments where we see him grappling, even after he's turned to the dark, with grief and with loss. So first there is, there's the scene in Revenge of the Sith. So after he has slaughtered the Separatist Council, we get that really poignant scene where he is on the balcony of the mining facility and he is looking out at the sun and there was a close-up to him, and you can see that there are tears running down his face. And then there is the other poignant scene for me, which is the final scene in Victory and Death in the Clone Wars, where, as Darth Vader, he finds the wreckage of the Star Destroyer that Ahsoka was on, and he digs through, and he finds her lightsaber, and he switches it on, and then he looks up, and he sees Morai. And what fascinates me about those two particular scenes, why why I'm bringing them up and putting them side to side is that both of those scenes draw strength, in my opinion, from their emotional ambiguity. As a viewer, as you're watching both of those scenes, both that scene from Revenge of the Sith and also the scene from The Clone Wars, it is not obvious to you, the viewer, either what you should be feeling or what the character in the moment is feeling. So when we look at Anakin on Mustafar and we see the tears running down his cheeks, we are prompted to ask ourselves, is he crying for the Separatists? Probably not. Is he crying for himself? For what he's done and what he's had to do in order to save Padme from his point of view? Is he Is he crying for Padme, maybe, because of everything that he's doing for her and maybe all the things that he might now have to keep from her. It's somewhat ambiguous exactly who are those tears for? What are those tears about? 
And I would say that last scene in Victory and Death is similarly ambiguous. And a lot of that ambiguity draws from the fact that, unlike the scene in Revenge of the Sith, we do not actually get to see Anakin's face. We get a little bit of the look of his eyes through the reddish tint of the helmet. But other than that, his face is entirely obscured by the helmet. There is nothing for us, the viewers, to read on his face. So we have no idea what Vader is thinking and feeling in that moment when he finds the lightsaber and when he's looking up at Morai. There's so many questions, again, that we could pose. Is there grief there when he finds the lightsaber? Is there... Is that closure for him? Is it like, what is it exactly? It's very, very unclear. And I think that absence of clarity is part of what makes that scene so powerful because we really don't know what's going through Vader's head at that moment. We don't know if he's sad. We don't know if he's found some sort of inner peace, however twisted that may be. And then, of course, over the whole course of his career as a Vader, we see in canon there are a number of other moments where we find Vader grappling with and confronting the various losses that he's faced. So in the comics, there is one moment where he goes to Naboo to visit the grave of Padme. There's a scene where we get to see Empire Strikes Back from Vader's perspective, and we see that moment where Luke throws himself down the big shaft in Cloud City after Vader tells him he's his father. And as Vader is watching Luke fall, Luke is kind of transforming both into his mother and then into Padme. So he's he's reliving all of those losses through seeing Luke, through losing Luke in that moment. The whole plot of the Vader Immortal is all of that is about him trying to use the dark side well that is below his castle Mustafar to try and bring Padme back. So Vader is time and again returning to those foundational losses. And we see that he he hasn't found a way to reconcile, to come to terms with them. In fact, he has allowed them to utterly consume him and define his entire life and everything that he is doing. And so for those reasons, Vader is a really, really fascinating and important character in terms of how characters in Star Wars deal with grief and loss in case of Vader in very decidedly unhealthy ways. But Vader is, of course, not the only character, and there's a bunch of other ones that we can look at and talk about, and I want to sort of highlight a bunch of them in succession. So the next one to take a look at is the figure of Kanan Jarrus. So I think Kanan is a really, really interesting figure in this regard. So when, if, if we look in terms of the canon timeline, the first time that we are, when we see Kanan in A New Dawn, we see him after all the events of Order 66 and the rise of the Empire. And when we meet him in that novel, we find him as a drifter. He's kind of hopping around from one planet to the next, not sticking around any one place for very long, doing all sorts of odd jobs. He's a smooth talker. He's a ladies' man. We get all those interactions between him and Ray Sloan where he's like cracking all sorts of jokes and, you know, being a wise guy and all of that. So he's at this point, he has become this person who is kind of detached from the larger galaxy and the larger struggle and everything that's going on with the Empire. He's just kind of 
surviving from one day to the next. And he's adopted this affect where he's very kind of aloof and detached and not really caring all that much. And when he first meets Hera in the novel, he initially has no interest at all in getting tangled up with her cause. He's willing to help her out, but then he but then he sort of resists teaming up with her and joining her in her struggle against the Empire. And of course, we find out there that he's also hiding the fact that he's a Jedi. So he's suppressing all of that, any kind of impulse to get involved in another fight, in another struggle, any way in which you can help others. He has kind of shelved all of that after everything that happened to him in Order 66. And he has instead adopted this life of basically just bouncing around, doing odd jobs and such. When we find him in Rebels, when his story picks up there, he's now become more involved. He's part of the Ghost crew, so he's running all of these missions where he's helping people, he's stealing from the Empire, he's delivering supplies. So he's now moved away from this guy who really didn't care in A New Dawn to this guy who is caring and is trying to make the galaxy a better place and improve people's lives. But as we find out when we get to Season 2, and the Ghost crew starts having greater interactions with the larger, the nascent Rebel Alliance, he's still not really interested in the bigger fight, in the bigger cause. He wants the crew to stay just a small crew running their own jobs. He doesn't want to get involved with this larger military political operation that is the Rebel Alliance. So we get that one scene where him and Hera are talking about this, and he says at one point, quote, I survived one war. I'm not ready for another one. So we see how that, how the Clone Wars and how it ended are impacting Kanan, where he doesn't want anything to have to do with a larger struggle. He doesn't want to become entangled in another war with another military with more politics because he's seen what could possibly happen from that with his experience in the Clone Wars. Another poignant moment in that regard for Kanan comes in the season two episode, The Lost Commanders, when Kanan and the others go to find Captain Rex. And they have that initial confrontation where they discover that the clones are clones. What we see in that moment is that not only does Kanan not trust the clones, because he's expecting them to want to wipe him out because he's a Jedi, the clones don't trust Kanan either. So once both sides immediately realize who they are, they both have a negative reaction. So there's at one point where Wolf draws a rifle at them and he cries out, Jedi, they've come for revenge. And he has to be stopped. And Rex is basically saying, oh, like, they're not the ones who betrayed us. Like, don't, like, don't attack him. He's not a threat. And over that whole arc with Rex and even beyond those two initial episodes, we see a lot of that distrust that Kanan has for Rex, where even after Rex assures him that, like, I didn't betray my Jedi, even though, Rex, you did betray your Jedi, we all watched Shattered, and assures him that he got his chip removed and he's not going to turn on him, Kanan still doesn't fully trust him, and it's not until later that he's finally able to accept that Rex is who he says he is, that he's a good person. But that initial that initial reluctance, that initial resistance to Rex solely by virtue of the fact that he's a clone, that is coming out of the trauma and the loss that Kanan has suffered 
during Order 66 with the loss of Depa Balaba. He is projecting that onto Rex. Even though Rex himself didn't do anything to hurt Kanan, Kanan is still treating Rex the same way that he would treat any other clone. He's seeing all of the clones the same, whereas Rex is trying to convince him, I'm not like the rest of them. I'm not like the ones who turned on you and killed your master. And he comes to discover that eventually. But it is, again, it's a process. Dealing with that loss, dealing with that trauma is a process, the same way that it's a process, say, in WandaVision. And since we're on the subject of Captain Rex, we might as well talk about what he deals with. One of my favorite, and I don't use this as an insult, but mid-tier episodes in Star Wars Rebels, I would dare say my favorite mid-tier episode in Star Wars Rebels, is the season three episode, The Last Battle. I love The Last Battle. It is a fantastic episode. I love it for so many reasons. But I love it particularly because it gives us this character study of Captain Rex. And it is a it is a meditation on post-traumatic stress from the perspective of Captain Rex. So we see when they get to the wreckage of the Separatist ship, the way that Rex immediately kind of goes into back into Clone Wars mode. So Ezra has that line where, you know, he finds the wreckage of some battle droids and he's, oh, well, like, oh, they, they don't seem that threatening. And then Rex just immediately snaps and he's like, thousands of my brothers were killed by these battle droids. I saw so many people die. Like, they're a threat. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. And then Kanan has that line, which I think is, is one of the most powerful lines in Rebels and I think really, really captures both what Rex is going through in the moment, but I think what so many characters in Star Wars go through, what someone like Kanan goes through, where he has that line where he says, battles leave scars, some you can't see. So what we find out in that episode is that Rex hasn't had any sort of catharsis or closure from the Clone Wars. He's continuing to reel from the losses and from the way in which the war ended almost 20 years out. And, you know, now that we have the kind of additional information from season seven of the Clone Wars, from having seen that story to the end, we see when we go back to the Siege of Mandalore, just how much that affects Rex, where he is seeing all of his brothers willing to kill him and willing to die because they've all been programmed to do so. So we can understand that now if we apply if we apply that bit of canon knowledge back into the last battle, we can see how that would scar someone like Rex, having gone through that, having seen these people he fought alongside just turning him on a dime, how that could scar him in these really profound ways. And we see in that episode that as soon as they confront the droids, as soon as they're forced to fight in... Kalani's little war game, and we'll talk about Kalani in a moment, he's immediately thrust back in the past. He is Captain Rex all over again of the 501st. It's like nothing's changed. He's thrown all the way back 20 years. So I just mentioned him, but then the other key figure in this episode is the figure of Kalani. So I talked about this concept a few minutes ago in the context of Agatha Harkness and Wanda, but I think Kalani in this episode similarly serves as a mirror character to Rex, and this is why I find Kalani really, really interesting. Like Rex, he's also stuck in the past, but to a much more extreme degree. Rex is in the past, psychologically speaking, 
Kalani is literally in the past. He is sitting in the wreckage of this Separatist ship, waiting around for 20 years for someone to show up so that he can secure a Separatist victory. For Kalani, the Clone Wars are literally still happening. The war isn't over. He is still in battle mode and has been this entire time. So he is, in that way, he is that mirror to Rex. Because we see this, we, we see this figure, this droid, who is frozen in the past to such an extreme degree. He can't move on just in the same way that Rex isn't able to move on. And we see that for both of them, for both Kalani and for Rex, both of them feel that they need to win this last battle in order to gain true closure. And like, what's great about this episode, and this is true so many times in Star Wars, which is that titles have double meanings. So if we take, for example, the last battle, the last battle in this context has two meanings. On the one hand, it is the last battle of the Clone Wars, this last fight in this conflict. It is the true end of the Clone Wars. But it is also figuratively the last battle. Both Kalani and Rex are fighting the last battle. They are stuck in the past. They are not in the present in the struggle with the Empire. They are still focused on this old conflict between the Republic and the Separatists, not this new conflict with the Subvergent Empire. And they need that battle to end in order for, in the case of Rex, because Kalani just kind of pieces, in order for Rex to really kind of make the turn away and move on and look ahead to the struggle against the Empire. And what happens at the end of that episode is that thanks to Ezra, both Kalani and Rex do get that closure. They come to the understanding that both droids and clones were set up to lose and that the real victor in the Clone Wars was the Empire. And it is that revelation that allows the two of them to ultimately reach an accord, come to a peace, and to then ultimately move on from fighting the last battle. So I love the last battle. It's such a real, it's, it's an interesting psychological drama from both sides, from both the perspective of Rex and both from Kalani. Probably, I think without a doubt, the most in-depth and compelling meditation on grief and trauma and loss in Star Wars comes to us in the sequel trilogy in the form of Luke and the Last Jedi. I love Luke and the Last Jedi. I absolutely like cannot get enough of thinking about, talking about Luke and the Last Jedi. He is a such a deep and fascinating and compelling figure when we find him in this moment on Octo. We get that moment at the very beginning where Rey is holding out the lightsaber to Luke, and Luke takes it, and then the tension of the moment cuts and he tosses away the lightsaber. And a lot of people really didn't and don't like that scene, in part because they don't see it as something that Luke would do. But to me, I think it is a fantastic embodiment of Luke's state of mind at that moment. We look at the Skywalker Saber. Ray looks at the Skywalker Saber as this symbol of the hero. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough. 
This was Luke's lightsaber and his father's before his, as Maz tells Rey. So we see it as this is the totem of the hero. That's not what it is for Luke. Not at The Last Jedi. Not, not in the psychological state in which we find him at the beginning of The Last Jedi. For Luke, the Skywalker saber in that moment embodies the very failure that he is rebelling against and the kind of failure that brought him into exile in the first place. Because think about what that saber means from Luke's perspective. That saber is a marker of one of the darkest and lowest days in his life. He lost that saber when his father chopped off his hand after he cut his training short after he left Dagobah when he shouldn't have, when Yoda told him and Obi-Wan told him he was not ready, he went anyway, and he faced Darth Vader, and he got his ass kicked. He went prematurely, and he wasn't ready to face him. He wasn't only not ready to face him from a technical level, in terms of his prowess, in terms of his abilities as a for with the Force. The Force is with you, young Skywalker, but you are not a Jedi yet. He was not also ready psychologically, not ready for the burden were you, as Yoda tells him in Return of the Jedi. He was not ready to face the truth about who his father was. He had been operating under this idyllic, mythic understanding of who his father was as a Jedi Knight. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy and a cunning warrior, and he was a good friend. He was not ready to face the fact that his father was actually one of the most evil men in the galaxy. All of that is bound up in that saber. All of those mistakes that Luke made and that crushing reality of discovering who his father really was and what his legacy really was. All of that is bound up inextricably in that lightsaber. So when Rey hands it back to him, it is not for Luke in that moment the totem of the hero. It is a totem of failure, of his personal failure. It is a reminder of... The time that he failed at one point, and by extension, it is a reminder to him to connect to his more recent failures with Ben. And that is why he tosses away the lightsaber. And that's why I think it's a really powerful moment there. And what we find with Luke over that course of that movie is that he is in this mental state where he fundamentally sees himself as a burden onto others. That is where he has been led mentally by virtue of the fallout with Ben and his turn to the dark side and the destruction of the training temple and the rise of Kylo Ren in the First Order. Luke thinks that the best way for him to protect those he loves is to retreat to an island and to die and to not train any more Jedi. He's not there because he doesn't care. He's not sitting on that island because he doesn't care about Leia or about the fate of the galaxy or about whether or not the First Order triumphs. He's there because he thinks this is the best way for good to ultimately win, which is to take himself out of the fight altogether, to disconnect himself from everyone he knows and loves, and to just live alone and ultimately pass away in obscurity. And I think that's a really, really powerful allegory for depression and for mental illness there. This, this mentality that Luke has adopted, that he can only see himself as a source and cause of pain and suffering in other people's lives. 
And along with closing himself off from those he loves, he's also closed himself off from the Force, which I think, again, is another powerful allegory in the sense that this is something that Luke has studied in, trained himself in. He developed these skills as a Jedi Master, and he has now pushed all of that away. And again, I think there is an allegory there for depression and loss where you not only disconnect from the people you love and the network of people around you, but you also lose a connection, lose interest in the things that were ultimately a source of joy and fulfillment for you. Hobbies, activities, crafts, and so on and so forth. I think there's an allegory there in him closing himself off from the Force. That he's not only disconnecting himself from people, he's also disconnecting himself from these other skills and talents and abilities that had brought him a sense of fulfillment and purpose in his life. And I think in addition to that grief and that depression that we find him in there, we also see Luke dealing with a great deal of anger and resentment. That's a really important part of the loss that he is dealing with. He resents not only the Jedi, the legacy of the Jedi is failure, hubris. You know, he talks about how the, the Jedi allowed the rise of Darth Sidious. It was a Jedi who was responsible for the training and creation of Darth Vader. But he also resents the mythos that had formed around him and that he had bought into. He resents that legend of Luke Skywalker that led Rey to Octo in the first place. So we get that moment where he's talking about his failure with Ben and how he tried to train Ben and ultimately how he lost in the dark. And he says, quote, I failed because I was Luke Skywalker, Jedi Master, a legend. So he is angry with himself. He resents himself because he, from his perspective, bought into this false narrative about who he was and what he was capable of. And that because he bought into that, all of these really bad things happened. He wasn't able to train Ben properly. He lost him to Snoke. So he's dealing with a lot of the anger and resentment where he sees himself and the Jedi path as being responsible for all of the suffering in the galaxy. The Jedi were responsible for the rise of Darth Sidious in the Empire, and he as a Jedi was responsible for the rise of Kylo Ren in the First Order. In addition to that, another key component of Luke's grief and his suffering, in addition to the ways that he's closed himself off, the ways that he sees himself as a burden, the anger and resentment that he's dealing with, is he's also, at the same time as all of that, he's also trying to cope in certain ways. And one important way, I think, that he does this, that we get to see in the movie, is that Luke constructs an alternate reality of how Ben was lost. So I talked about this in an earlier episode. I don't remember exactly which one. But in The Last Jedi, we get three different narratives of what happened that night between Luke and Ben. We get Kylo Ren's version. We get Luke's first version. And then we get the final version towards the end of the movie. And if we look at that first version with Luke that, that Luke tells Rey, 
he tells her, quote, I went to confront him and he turned on me. And in that version that he tells her, that first version, he omits entirely the fact that he nearly killed Ben. He doesn't say anything about the fact that he had this flash moment where he turned on the lightsaber and he was going to strike, but then he instantly changed his mind. We don't, we don't get those details until the second version. In that first version, he basically omits himself as the kind of catalyst for Ben reacting the way that he does. And I think when we talk about not just Star Wars characters processing loss and trauma, but then how that sometimes gets translated in the real world. I think sometimes that, it, like, I think that is very much a coping mechanism that we also sometimes see in the real world. Ways that people respond to bad things that have happened or that they may have done, which is that they try to convince themselves that things didn't happen the way that they did, and they try to construct these alternate scenarios, or they try to reason in ways that limit or omit their own responsibility for what happened. It, like That's one of the kind of coping mechanisms, I think, that is, that is hardwired into the brain, because... It's obviously very difficult for any individual, you know, when something has happened to say like, oh, shoot, like that bad thing happened and it was my fault. We try to find ways, rationalizations. We try to say like, oh, it wasn't totally me. I didn't mean to actually this happened. So that kind of that alternate version of events that Luke presents to Ray, I think, is also a kind of allegory for how individuals, when they are dealing with some sort of trauma and loss, also try to rewrite events that happen in their head to change what they did or what they didn't do or how they reacted or how they didn't react. So for all those reasons, I think Luke is a really, really fascinating and important character. So I'm not even going to get into here his conversation with Yoda, which I think is, which is my favorite moment in the sequel trilogy. And I may do something with that in a future episode. I feel like I keep teasing that particularly on Twitter, but I do want to do something with that conversation because I think it's so powerful and it's so important. And I love it so much, but we will leave Luke in the last Jedi for now. What I want to do now is we've talked about all of these examples of characters who have dealt with loss and trauma in unhealthy, negative, not that great ways. We've talked about Vader, we've talked about Kanan, we've talked about Rex, we've talked about Luke. But not all of the stories of confronting and dealing with loss in Star Wars are negative ones. In fact, we do get some examples of positive grief, where we get to see characters have loss and have to grapple with it and suffer on account of it, but then ultimately come out of it in a positive direction, that they are ultimately able to find their way and not get lost in it the way that, let's say, a Vader does or that a Kanan does for a time or the way that Luke does for a time. And I think the greatest examples of this, what I'm calling positive grief, come from Star Wars Rebels, and I think particularly come from the characters of Ezra and Hera. So if we go to season four, we go to the wake of Kanan's death, we get two phenomenal episodes at the end of season four, where we really get to see this all fleshed out. 
So on the one hand, there's the episode Doom that happens right after Jedi Knight, right after the death of Kanan, where we get to see how all of the ghost crew deal with and react to Kanan's loss. So if we look at Hera, for instance, in the aftermath of Kanan's death, we see that Hera, she steps away from everything. She sets aside her commitments and her obligations and her responsibilities to the rebellion in order to grieve properly. So we get that scene early on in the episode when they return back to their base camp where Ryder immediately tries to engage Hera in strategy, he immediately tries to talk shop with her about like how do we react, like how do we how do we respond, how do we attack back to the Empire? And Hera, rather than just throwing herself back into the work of the fight, she just walks away. She doesn't say anything to Ryder. She just pieces. Which I think is really, really powerful and I think really, really important for her character. Because not only does her doing that give her time to process her loss. We get to see that moment where she's alone with Chopper and she's got the calicory and she's lamenting the fact that she didn't tell Kanan earlier how she really felt. Not only is her taking that time and that space for herself important for processing her loss and working through it on her own, it also keeps her from reacting out of loss. So if she had, instead of just walking away that she does, if she had, in fact, just thrown herself back into tactics and strategy, she might have responded in ways that could have potentially endangered the rebellion because she might have been acting out of that initial grief and initial pain. And we have a good contrast in that episode to Hera with both Sabine and Zeb and the arc that they go on in that episode. So what we see with Sabine and Zeb is that unlike Hera, who kind of takes that pause and takes that moment to deal with the loss, they want to strike back immediately. They want to hit back the Empire and they want to hit them back hard. And so we get that whole arc where they go out they and then they're like going out to capture Rook and they fight him because they want to immediately do the fight fire with fire, inflict a wound on the Empire the same way that the Empire wounded them. And I'm actually going to come back to what happens with them and Rook in a moment. So we've got those two. We've got the way that Hera reacts and is processing it. We see the way that Sabine and Zeb react and process to it. And then we've got the third important figure in this episode, which is Ezra. And what we see with Ezra is he's dealing with a whole mix of emotions. He's not only dealing with just the pain of the loss, but he is also feeling lost, just personally not sure what to do next, like what's going to happen to him. He's feeling very confused, and he's also feeling very guilty for Kanan's loss. And in those ways, what Ezra is going through mirrors, I think, in important ways, what Kanan deals with in the aftermath of Depa's death. And we see that with Kanan in season one, where he's also dealing with a lot of guilt and feeling like he didn't do enough and like he abandoned his master. And Ezra is also dealing with all of that. Not sure what the next step is, not sure what direction he's supposed to go in, what he's supposed to do, and feeling like maybe he didn't do enough to help his master. And Ezra, 
Whereas Sabine and Zeb, on the one hand, you know, Goa, and they're going for the tit-for-tat fight fire with fire, and Hera is kind of dealing with her loss, but dealing with it kind of internally and just kind of processing it on her own. Ezra is made to confront his loss and all of the feelings that are falling out from it in the form of doom. So there is that moment where he is transported in front of the figure of doom and he is surrounded by all of the loath wolves. And doom is there as this kind of spectral entity, a kind of external manifestation of Ezra's internal psychological state, basically forcing Ezra both to confront what he's feeling, but also, crucially, trying to guide Ezra to his next path, trying to put him in the right direction, because it is, it's Doom and the Loath Wolves who give him the, the stone from the Jedi Temple that ultimately allows him to unlock the world between worlds. So they are the ones who give him his next mission. So they're performing this double function for Ezra. They're forcing Ezra, they're keeping him from running away from his emotions. They're keeping him from getting lost or caught up in his emotions. And they are showing him the way. They are putting him on the path that he needs to be on. And to go back to Zeb and Sabine to kind of finish up their story, what we see there is they start out from this initial position of fighting fire with fire. They go out, they capture Rook, they fight him. But ultimately, they too end in a different position. So we see there after they capture him, Zeb, his instinct is he wants to beat Rook into a pulp, but then Sabine ultimately stops him. And she ultimately tells him that this is not the way to get even. And, they do, and then they do the whole thing where they like paint up Rook and then kind of send him back to the capital. So all three of these, all of these characters, both Hera, Zeb and Sabine together, and then Ezra, we get this arc in this episode where they get this initial loss and reaction. And then over the course of the episode, they ultimately find their they ultimately find the right path for them for dealing with that and not letting it going astray and not getting consumed by the suffering that they're feeling. And ultimately that leads us into the mission to the Jedi Temple and the world between worlds and the the kind of closure to that arc, the whole story about React to Kanan's death is the final seen in A World Between Worlds. Ezra, in going through The World Between Worlds, has to accept the reality of Kanan's loss and that there is no way to save him. He goes to that portal, he sees Kanan there sacrificing himself, and he has the impulse to reach out and save him the same way that he saved Ahsoka. But Ahsoka is there to tell him, no, if you reach out, you all die. You can't save your master like I can't save mine. So Ahsoka is there to tell him, the world between worlds is there for, for Ezra to learn and discover that Kanan is in fact well and truly gone and that there is in fact nothing that Ezra can do. Because when we see him in Doom, he's in that position of feeling that guilt and feeling like he could have done more. And then by the time we get to a world between worlds, he's realizing Kanan had to do this to save everyone. There wasn't anything that Ezra could do. There was no alternate scenario in which Kanan made it out of it. And then we get... Then we get the final scene of A World Between Worlds. The last two minutes of A World Between Worlds are, in my humble opinion, the Star Wars franchise's best statement on loss and acceptance 
and overcoming. I think those last two minutes are absolutely beautiful and phenomenal, where we get to see him, uh, Ezra, and Hera on the plains where the Jedi Temple used to be. It's all gone. It's now flat land. And they're looking out, and there's that mist. And then Ezra tells Hera, I know what we have to do now. In a way, Kanan showed me one last lesson. And then he looks out, and he sees that loath wolf in the distance, and he says, goodbye, Kanan. And the loath wolf turns and walks into the mist. Chef's kiss. Beautiful. Phenomenal. I cannot say enough good things about it. Phenomenal ending. Just incredible closure there. We see Ezra and Hera accepting the reality that Kanan is gone. And in that acceptance, they gain clarity. Ezra gains clarity about what he needs to do next. He takes Kanan's loss and turns it into a lesson and learns that ultimately he needs to do what Kanan did, which is to make the sacrifice play, to be willing to lay his own life down ultimately for the larger cause, which he doesn't I mean he doesn't die at the end of Rebels, but he ultimately does sacrifice himself in order to get rid of Thrawn as a threat and to ultimately save Lothal. And I think that is just super, super powerful and super, super incredible. And Rebels just does a fantastic job with wrapping up that arc and that story. And then the last thing to mention about Rebels, and in this context of positive grief, is the series finale, Family Reunion and Farewell, where we get Ezra's confrontation with Palpatine, which I think is really important, and I think is an example of where we get to see how Ezra has internalized and learned the lessons from Kanan and Kanan's loss. So Palpatine, as we see in that scene, he tries to basically pull the whole Anakin Skywalker rigmarole. He tries to manipulate Ezra into opening the portal in order to bring his parents back. So he is basically tempting Ezra the same way that he tempted Anakin, saying, like, you can use these powers and abilities to save people you love, to bring them back from the dead. You just have to do it. You have to indulge it. And whereas, of course, we know Anakin goes full bore, and he accepts Palpatine's devil's bargain, and he turns to the dark side. Ezra, Ezra has that knowledge, he has that wisdom born out of his experience with Caden and the loss of Caden and what happened in a world between worlds. He knows he can't bring his parents back. The same way that he... The same way that he learned that he can't bring Cain back in the world between worlds, and he ultimately refuses, and he destroys the temple. And that we get that really powerful line when he's confronting the hologram of Palpatine, where he says, I don't need anything from you. And to go back to where we started this episode with WandaVision, I think there's a really powerful parallel between that moment and then the moment between Wanda and Agatha, where Wanda tells her, I don't need you to tell me who I am. Both of them are confronting these respective evils, Palpatine on the one hand and Agatha on the other, and basically forthrightly rejecting him, saying, like, you will not define me. You will not tell me what I, who and what I am. I don't need anything from you. And I think that really, that's a real testament to both of their journeys, both the journey that Ezra had been on with his grief and loss and the journey that Wanda had been on with her grief and loss. And I think both shows... Both of those moments in both of those shows are really, really powerful and really, really poignant. 
So yeah, I just love what Rebels does in terms of the subject of grief and loss and showing us the ways that giving us the space and time to see these different characters grapple with the whole mix of emotions that they're feeling and then the ways that they are able to turn that loss and turn that suffering that they feel towards action in the name of the greater cause, in the name of the rebellion. And I think that's just one of the many, many things that I love so dearly about Star Wars Rebels. All right, so we have, we've talked a little moral philosophy. We've talked a little bit about grief and loss in Star Wars. Now, last but certainly not least, we are going to be talking about the Ship of Theseus. Or, in this case, the Ships of Theseus. So, in the series finale, we get this fantastic scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in the entire show, where you get this confrontation between... The Vision, who exists in Westview, who's the creation of Wanda, and White Vision. So as we find out, Sword has possession of Vision's body, and they have rebuilt him into this thoughtless, mindless weapon who is sent into Westview with the goal of destroying Vision and Wanda. And the two of them meet. And they have this really, really fascinating conversation back and forth. And their conversation centers on this very old thought experiment called the Ship of Theseus. And the idea behind the Ship of Theseus is that the wood on the ship is rotting. And if the rotting planks are replaced to the point that all of the old planks are gone, all of the original planks have been removed, is it still the Ship of Theseus? So this question about identity and the properties of identity. And then Vision poses a second scenario, a second possibility alongside this. If the rotting planks that have been removed, if they are restored and then reassembled, put back together, is that the ship of Theseus? So which of the two ships is the true ship of Theseus? So they're basically, he's using this as a allegory for him and White Vision to basically say, which one is the true Vision? And the conclusion that White Vision reaches is that neither is the true ship, both are the true ship. So both the Illusion Vision in Westview and White Vision are the true Vision. And it is at that point that the Westview vision helps White Vision kind of restore his previous memories and experiences. And then he realizes that he is, in fact, Vision. And then he flies off to a fate that we as yet do not know. I think this thought experiment with, with the ship of Theseus and this question about identity, which is the true ship, neither is the true ship, both are the true ship. I think there is a lot of relevance to Star Wars, because this notion of duality, this notion that two different things can in fact be the same thing, I think this is actually an important concept in Star Wars, that things that are seen as contrary and contradicting actually form a kind of cohesive whole. And this, of course, is sort of ties back to some of Star Wars's Eastern influences with yin and yang and such. And indeed, 
Across the Star Wars franchise, we have numerous examples of situations that are very analogous to the Vision, White Vision face-off at the end of WandaVision, where characters have to essentially confront their doppelgangers, usually not, I don't think ever actually, in a literal sense, in the sense that like there is another copy of them. It's always in a more kind of ethereal form. But it's in the same exercise where they're confronting this version of themselves and in so doing are negotiating and confronting a different facet of their identity and this process of self-discovery. There's a really interesting moment in the original Clone Wars cartoons, the old Tartakovsky Clone Wars, where they are talking about Anakin's Jedi trials and whether or not he should be promoted to the rank of knight. And they basically talk about all of the different facets of the Jedi trials and the ways that Anakin has dealt with them. So Obi-Wan talks about the trial of skill and he references there Anakin defeating Ventress in the cartoons. He references the trial of the flesh, hearkening back to Anakin losing his arm to Count Dooku on Geonosis. He talks about Anakin having confronted various tests of courage but as the Jedi, as the Jedi Council points out, as some of the council members point out, there is still one trial left that Anakin has yet to fulfill in order to become a full-fledged Jedi Knight. And that test is described by two different council members as, quote, testing the spirit and, quote, facing the mirror. I think this notion of facing the mirror is very, very fascinating. And this is a recurring motif in Star Wars with a number of different characters who are made to face the mirror in the same way that Vision does on the show in the form of White Vision and White Vision does in the form of the Illusion Vision. Both of them are facing the mirror at the same time. So the first major example that we get of this in canon and I think arguably the most significant and most important one is Luke in The Empire Strikes Back, in the cave scene on Dagobah. So as we see there, in that scene, Luke has this, he's drawn to this cave, and Yoda tells him a domain of evil it is. He goes off into the cave, and he enters the cave from a position of offense. So Yoda tells him, your weapons, you will not need them. Luke brings his weapons anyway. He goes into the cave and he confronts the specter of Darth Vader. And what we see happen in the cave is that Luke ignites his lightsaber first, after which Vader ignites. The two of them fight briefly. He decapitates Vader. And when his head falls to the ground, the helmet explodes and Luke sees his own face. And this scene is a really, really important moment in Luke's journey. It is showing him the consequences of indulging the fear and the anger within him. It is illustrating to him the dangers of and the temptations of the dark path that Yoda has been telling him about. And of course, it is especially poignant when at the end of the movie we learn that Darth Vader is in fact Luke's father. 
And in fact, the trilogy kind of circles back to this moment, albeit indirectly or calls back to it indirectly in Return of the Jedi when Luke defeats Vader in real life, just as he did in the cave. And then he has that moment where he sees the stump of Vader's mechanical hand and then he looks down and Luke sees his own robot hand. So again, that parallel there between what happens in Return of the Jedi and what happens in Empire Strikes Back. The cave scene in Empire is a foreshadow to what happens in Return of the Jedi, where Luke sees some part of Vader in him and some part of him reflected in Vader. And it is this moment, it is this omen, it's this warning in both cases, both with the helmet and with the arm, that Luke is going down the wrong path and that he is treading dangerously closely to becoming tempted and consumed by the dark side the same way that his father is. Now, what's interesting is a little bit later on in Empire, just as Luke is preparing to leave Dagobah to go to, go to Cloud City, he and Yoda have this back and forth, and Yoda tells him, the cave, remember your failure at the cave. Now, what's interesting is that the film at no point, and neither does Return of the Jedi do this either, the film never defines what exactly Luke's failure was. We are meant to take Yoda at his word and say, okay, Luke failed in the cave. But we never are actually told by anybody what exactly the failure was. It's never defined specifically. Now, at face value, we might think, okay, the failure is he reacts Offensively, he attacks Vader. And I should actually point out another parallel here, which is that in the cave, just as he does when he ultimately confronts Vader in the flesh in Cloud City at the end of the movie, Luke ignites his lightsaber first. So there is that again, that parallel of acting from a place of offense. So at first blush, the failure might be, or we might be led to believe from Yoda, that the failure is that Luke acted offensively, he attacked Vader, he killed him. But we know from Return of the Jedi that that's exactly what Yoda and Obi-Wan want him to do. They want him to ultimately strike down Vader. It's Luke who has to push back against that and say, there's another way I think I can save him. So it's not that. It's not the fact that he strikes down Vader, because they want him to do that anyway. I think more precisely what the failure, what Luke's failure at the cave is that, is that in attacking Vader, in striking him down, he was acting out of fear, hate, and anger. He was tapping into that dark side, those elements of the dark side, those things that will send him down the wrong path, rather than confronting and facing Vader from the impulse to protect and save others. And this kind of harkens back to, I talked about this a few episodes ago, back on the love episode, the conversation that Yoda and Ezra have in the Jedi Temple and will fall on rebels, where Yoda is questioning Ezra about why does he want to become a Jedi and... Ezra is talking about revenge and hitting back against the Empire, and then Yoda saying, like, no, 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 that's not right. And then he ultimately gets him to the point where Ezra is saying, like, the reason he wants to become a Jedi is to help and save people. I think there is a parallel between that and then what Yoda is talking about in terms of the failure at the cave. It's not that 
he kills the specter of Vader. Because again, Yoda is at this point not believing that Vader can be turned back to the light. He intends for Luke to eventually strike down Vader anyway. So I don't think it's that. I think it's that basically why Luke is doing it. Not necessarily how he's doing it, but what his actual motivations are. Luke's motivations in the cave. And in fact, Luke's motivations when he does defeat his father in Jedi are coming from this place of fear and hate and anger. So it is, he is going on the dark path. And so I think that is what Yoda is alluding to there when he's talking about the failure at the cave. He's referring not so much to Luke's actions per se, but rather to his state of mind as he was doing them. On the subject of Yoda, Yoda has his own cave-type moment, not necessarily in the sense of going into a cave, but in terms of confronting a specter of himself. And we get to see this in Season 6 of The Clone Wars in the Yoda arc when he is going on the journey to learn about the midichlorians and about how to maintain his consciousness and manifest himself after death. And we get that moment where after he meets for the first time with the Force Priestesses, he goes off and... Yoda has this confrontation with this, with basically the kind of, essentially like a demon Yoda. I don't know how else you want to describe him. And the conversation that the two of them have in the midst of duking it out, I think is really, really interesting. And I want to like, and I want to go through part of it here because it's really fascinating. So at one point, the demon Yoda says, Yoda hates me. Yes. Yoda plays not with me anymore. Yoda thinks me not worthy. To which Yoda replies, Yoda recognizes you not. See not what is inside, Yoda? The demon Yoda asks. I choose not to give you power, Yoda replies. And then the demon Yoda answers, And yet you spend your days in the decadence of war, and with that I grow inside you. Know your true self. Face me now, or I will devour you. And then the two of them fight for a little bit, and then Yoda responds, Part of me you are not. Part of you I am, the demon Yoda says, part of all that lives. Recognize you I do, Yoda replies to that. Part of me you are, yes, but power over me you have not. Through patience and training, it is I who control you. Control over me you have not. My dark side you are, reject you I do. Neither is the true ship Both are the true ship. See the arc that Yoda goes on through that confrontation. He starts at first by completely denying the demonic Yoda. He says, I don't recognize you. You're not a part of me. You have nothing to do with me. And then by the time he gets to the end of the confrontation and the way that he ultimately defeats the specter is by saying, no, actually, I recognize you. You are, in fact, a part of me. But you are not the totality of me, and crucially, you do not have control over me. And in fact, through my training, through my patience, I'm the one who has control over you, and I have the power ultimately to reject you and say that you do not define me who I am. So he goes on that really, really important journey in terms of both recognizing the darkness within him and then ultimately insisting that he is not going to allow it to consume him and that, in fact, he is going to triumph over it. 
Now, what I think is really interesting about Yoda, though, is that whole confrontation there ends with him saying, reject you, I do, I control you, and such. But I think once we look over the long arc of Yoda's life and career, and particularly everything that happens afterwards in Revenge of the Sith and so on, we can ask the question, we can pose the question, did Yoda really conquer his fears in that moment? And I think particularly, again, back, going back to Star Wars Rebels, because that's what we do on this show. We always go back to Star Wars Rebels, to that second conversation between Yoda and Ezra in the Jedi Temple on Lothal, when they are talking about the Clone Wars and the dark side and the fall of the Jedi. And Yoda tells Ezra, quote, a long time fought I did, consumed by fear I was, though see it I did not. The Yoda in Clone Wars in that moment is insisting that he recognizes and sees and is exercising control over his fears, over his darkness. But by the time we get to Rebels Yoda, Rebels Yoda saying, yeah, I was consumed by fear and I didn't even know it. I didn't even see that I was acting out of fear. And I think that is an important moment of insight and revelation for Yoda. And I think it is something that he gets as a consequence of his exile, where he is able to meditate and reflect on his actions and his state of mind, and is able to say that, Maybe I was a bit arrogant at the time when I thought, oh, I have control over my dark side, over my fears, and all of that. Maybe, in fact, they were motivating me far more. They had greater control than I was willing to admit at the time. So I think that confrontation that he has with Yoda, with the Yoda doppelganger in Clone Wars, I think, is really, really fascinating. And then I think the other really, really key example that we have of this facing the mirror of having to confront your own doppelganger in Star Wars is the case of Rey. And this happens in The Last Jedi on Octo when she enters the mirror cave, which, like the cave on Dagobah, is this well of the dark side. This is really interesting here because unlike in the case of Luke, she is not going in to face down her enemy, or she does not confront her enemy. She is, in fact, going in there looking for a certain truth. She's looking for answers about who her parents are, and she's hoping to see them. And as everyone who's watched the movie knows, she has this whole moment where she sees like multiple copies of herself kind of extending infinitely in all directions. And then she has this moment where she's standing in front of this mirror and she sees these two specters kind of walking towards her and then they ultimately merge and then she ultimately only sees a reflection of herself she thinks she's about to see her parents walking toward her but then it ultimately turns up she's just seeing herself this is really important in terms of both ray's journey and also her state of mind where she is at this particular moment in the sequel trilogy, which is that even after the events of Force Awakens, even after Maz Kanata tells her in the basement of the castle in Takodana that her parents aren't coming back and that Rey, in fact, knows that truth, she still feels that longing for them. You know, Kylo kind of uses that against her where he where he berates her for constantly looking for parental figures, first in Han Solo, then in Luke Skywalker. And we see that she hasn't, she, she's still fixated on this part of the past. 
Maz tells her in The Force Awakens that the belonging you seek is not behind you but ahead. But what we see in the mirror cave with Rey is that Rey has not fully accepted that yet. She's still looking behind her. She's still looking for answers for truth in her past and her parents and thinking that if she looks behind her, she looks the past, she will find what she needs in terms of identity and belonging. Whereas in fact, and this is where she ultimately gets at the end of the sequel trilogy, is understanding that all those things that she's looking for in terms of a family, in terms of an identity, in terms of belonging, all of that is ahead of her and it is all around her in terms of Finn and Poe and the Resistance and the Skywalker family and legacy and all of that. So in the mirror cave, she is having that that confrontation with herself in terms of her internal struggles with identity and belonging becoming externalized in the form of the mirror of herself. Rey also gets a second mirror sequence in The Rise of Skywalker. So she gets not one, but two. And in this case, in The Rise of Skywalker, we see this happen on Kefbeer in the wreckage of the Death Star 2 when she goes in to find the Emperor's Wayfinder. And in there, she has a confrontation with Dark Ray, with the dark side version of herself, the same version that she sees when she has the vision of herself sitting on the throne of the Sith earlier on in the movie. And the two of them fight briefly, and Dark Ray has this really important line where she tells... Ray, quote, don't be afraid of who you are, which parallels, which is almost word for word, the same thing that Leia tells her at the beginning of the episode. But even though the words are very similar, their meaning and the subtext behind them are very, very different. Leia is telling Ray that as a means of reassurance, as we subsequently find out, Leia at this point knows that Ray is a Palpatine, and she's basically trying to tell Rey, don't be afraid of who you are, don't let that define you, learn to kind of accept that and sort of move ahead on that, you know, don't allow that to kind of break you or, or bring you down, that fact of where you come from. Dark Ray, on the other hand, has a totally different meaning when she says, don't be afraid of who you are. She is pushing Rey to embrace the legacy of her grandfather and to embrace the legacy of her of darkness whereas leia is trying to tell her something very different and when she's saying never be afraid of who you are in all of these cases in the cases with of ray in the rise of skywalker and the last jedi in the case of yoda in the clone wars in the case of luke in empire strikes back in all these instances these characters are facing externalized manifestations of internal struggles. And ultimately, the moral in all of these instances, the moral of the Dagobah cave, the moral of the Yoda demon, the moral of the mirror cave and of Dark Ray, is all the same. Which is to say, the point isn't to say that all of these are distortions or perversions of these characters. It's not to say that the Vader in the cave on Dagobah is some 
false or twisted version of Luke, or that the doppelganger Yoda is some false or twisted version of Yoda, or that Dark Ray is some false or in, or twisted or distorted version of Ray. It is rather to say that all of those specters, all of those entities, are in fact a part of them. Neither is the true ship. Both are the true ship. Luke has the seeds of darkness within him of fear and hate and anger. Yoda has those seeds within him of fear. Rey has those seeds of fear and anger in her. So both both Rey and Dark Rey are the true Rey. Both Yoda and the demon Yoda are the true Yoda. Both Luke and the Luke behind the Vader mask are the true Luke. And so ultimately... The ultimate moral, the ultimate lesson, is not that these characters, these heroes, have no darkness within them, but rather it's a moral about choosing to embrace the light and turn away from the dark. It is looking at, it is acknowledging, it is accepting that you have those parts of you that maybe you don't like to acknowledge, or the parts of you that you don't particularly like or are proud of or aren't particularly great, but then ultimately making that choice to say that those things about yourself are not definitive of who you are and don't define who you are, and that in fact you have power and agency in terms of making a choice about the sort of person you want to be. And that makes me think of a really powerful line from Master and Apprentice that Qui-Gon Jinn says to Rail Avros in that book, and he says, quote, it matters which side we choose even if there will never be more light than darkness, even if there can be no more joy in the galaxy than there is pain, for every action we undertake, for every word we speak, for every life we touch, it matters. I don't turn toward the light because it means someday I'll win some sort of cosmic game. I turn toward it because it is the light. Neither is the true ship. Both are the true ship. It is about making the choice to turn toward the light because it is the light. It is Luke throwing away the lightsaber in Return of the Jedi. It is Yoda in Rebels admitting that he was consumed by fear and he didn't see it. It is Rey in Exegol standing before Palpatine saying, All you want from me is to hate you, but I won't. It is her on tattooing the Lars homestead, saying, who are you, Ray, Ray, who, Ray Skywalker? It is the choice to turn towards the light because it is the light. Neither is the true ship. Both are the true ship. So that, so that is why I love that ship of Theseus scene and why I think it has so much resonance in the realm of Star Wars because it is speaking to a moral and a truth that the franchise has been saying for many, many years, that we all, we all constitute these contradicting dualities. We have these contradictions within us, and they coexist. And a lot of the exercise of living is about both recognizing that duality and then also, also kind of living and negotiating between that reality and that duality. It's a really, really, really interesting scene. I love that it was in the show. And um, I think it's just another connection between 
this show and the world of Star Wars. So, on that note, I will uh, wrap up this episode, this look into WandaVision and some of its thematic and narrative overlaps with the Star Wars franchise. So I hope you all uh, enjoyed that, and um, there will be more to come. There are many, many other crossovers that I want to do. There will be one coming again in the not-too-distant future concerning yet another MCU Phase 4 property, so, you know, keep your eyes peeled for that. In the meantime, what to expect on the next episode? So episode 20... 20th episode of a larger view of the force of star wars podcast will drop on may 2nd and to kick off the show's roaring 20s i decided that it would be fitting to do an episode that would be a celebration of one of my favorite characters in all of star wars and many many fans favorite i am referring of course to none other than ahsoka tano so episode 20 will be the celebration of Ahsoka Tano. I will be joined by Brandon from Clashing Sabers, who is another Ahsoka Tano superfan. We are going to be talking about our connections and relationship to the characters, the way that we were introduced to Ahsoka. We're going to talk about some of the key moments in her story across the Clone Wars and Rebels and Mandalorian. And we'll also do a little bit of speculating about her future about the Ahsoka show and then anything potentially beyond that. So I am super, super stoked to have that conversation and to get to share it with all of you because Ahsoka Tano is very near and dear to my heart. She's a very important character in terms of my Star Wars fandom. And I know for a lot of people, in particular a lot of people who are listening to this show, that is also the case. So we are just going to have a great time sort of celebrating this really, really important character to Star Wars. Until then, make sure that you are subscribed to the show, uh, rate and review the show if you are able to do so. If you're not already following the show on Twitter, you can do so at a larger view pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Demondum. And until next time, look for the Force, and you will always find me. <laughs>